Thanks so much, everybody, for joining us today for worship. I don't know about you, but I really needed that worship time this morning. That was awesome, and I'm so thankful for our team and all the creativity that they bring and the different styles of worship that they bring in here. It's really, really great to be a part of that. I want to welcome anybody that's new. Thanks for being here. I want to say hi to everybody that's traveling and on vacation right now. Also, this last week, our senior high ministry just got back from their camp trip. They were doing service projects in Tennessee. I think they worked on six different roofs. Did any of you go on the trip that's here? Wow, and you were here this morning. Way to go, guys. There's a few of you that were that have recovered enough to make it here this morning. Good job. Uh, we're hearing great things about that trip and some awesome life-changing moments, so we, we praise God for that. And then I want to ask you if you would be praying for our junior high ministry, because they're about to leave for Kansas City to do something similar, service projects and a camp experience in Kansas City this week, so please be praying for them. Um, also, next week on Sunday, we are going to launch a new series for the summer called People Are Asking, and we ask you for all of your questions. You gave us a ton of questions, and we have tried to select uh, a, a bunch of those that you might be interested in hearing about, and this might be a great series to invite a neighbor or a friend to. So let me just give you a little preview of some of the questions. For instance, how can you say there's only one way to God? How can you say there's only one way to God? Or does science contradict the Bible? How can a loving God send people to hell? These are really good questions and important questions. And sometimes I think in churches, it feels like we can't ask those kinds of questions. So we want to be a safe place where we can talk about those sorts of questions and doubts and wrestlings. And that's absolutely fine. We're going to cover those questions and a lot more to the people are asking series. So please make sure you're here for that. It will be great. You are not going to want to miss it. Well, since it's Father's Day, I don't always do this, uh, but I do want to have a message that's mostly focused on the dads today. So don't check out if you're not a dad, but this is going to be a message that's mostly for the dads and the, and the granddads that are here watching online right now. And, and I don't always do this. Um, I don't have messages for every holiday. Holidays, in my opinion, are just man-made events to sell more cards, flowers, and gifts, and those sorts of things. It's really, it's really very materialistic, the, the, the promotion of all the holidays that's out there. I don't do a message, for instance, on National Donut day, although maybe I should. But for Father's Day, by the way, we do have donuts for dads and kid connection. So if you got kids and kid connection, today is donut day for you. But for Father's Day, I thought this year, let's go ahead and do a message that is focused on the dads. And specifically, we're going to be talking about two things today, God's design for the family and how to build your family on solid ground. How can you have a firm foundation for your family from God's word? So that's what we're going to get into and talk about today. Now, when it comes to fathers, fatherhood is, is one of those things that seems like it's really downplayed in our culture and our society today. I mean, it seems like everywhere you look, fatherhood is sort of a minimized thing, um, especially if you look in the, the media. It seems like dads are, are not really portrayed very positively in many instances. And depending on what TV shows you watch or movies you watch, the dad is often kind of the, the goofy, lazy, bumbling, apathetic sort of character who's a lot of fun to watch, don't get me wrong, but not exactly a picture of a strong, confident, masculine dad. And fatherhood and masculinity are, are two of those concepts that are kind of downplayed a lot in our culture, in our society today. And so it's shocking to see over the last 60 years what has happened to the family in this country and how f having a father in the home is becoming more and more rare, um, which is a really incredible thing, not just given what the Bible says, which we'll get into in a little bit, but just given the statistics, just given the research on what a difference it makes to have a dad in the home. Listen to this. With a father in the home, children are four times less likely to live in poverty. With a father in the home, children have a dramatically reduced risk of drug and alcohol abuse. 
Children in a two-parent home have half the suicide rate of children in a single-parent home. With a father in the home, children test at significantly higher levels academically and are more than twice as likely to graduate from high school. With a father in the home, teenagers are much less likely to be sexually active, and they're seven times less likely to get pregnant as a teenager. With a father in the home, kids are significantly less likely to commit crime. Here's an example. If you don't have a father in the home, there's a 279% higher likelihood of dealing drugs or using guns to commit crimes. 279% higher likelihood if you don't have a father in the home. 85% of youth in a correctional facility come from fatherless homes. 90% of homeless youth are from fatherless homes. And these facts don't even take into account whether the father is a really good father or not so good father. It's just on average, this is the impact that having a father in the home has versus doesn't have. But our media loves to portray this sort of goofy, bumbling dad and, and someone that if he, did, if he was successful at all, it's just because he failed upward. And so our picture of fatherhood that we get from our culture isn't exactly a positive one. And in the world in general and in our country in general, we just have fewer and fewer dads who are staying in the homes with their kids. But even for the moms, the research indicates that having a father in the home is extremely important. If there's a father in the home, mothers are more likely to receive prenatal care. They're less likely to smoke while pregnant. They're more likely to have a healthy birth. They're less likely to experience postpartum depression, and on average, will have lower parenting stress. That's just the research. We haven't even opened God's word yet. That's just what the research says about having a father in the home and the impact that that makes. Now, am I saying, this would be a valid question right now, am I saying that dads are better than moms? This is what my son would ask right now if he heard this. Are you saying you're better than mom? Let me tell you this. A godly dad is infinitely better than a godly mom at being a dad. And a, and a godly mom is infinitely better at being a mom than a godly dad is. Why? Because God designed those two different parts to come together and make one group of parents to raise the kids together. That's God's design for the family. And we're going to dig into that a little bit. But let me just give you an example of, of, of what I mean by these two different people that are so important, both of them, but they come together. And I'm going to use an old trick that the rabbis used to use 2,000 years ago. They would use this phrase. They would say, to what can this be compared? So to what can this be compared? Uh, think about it this way. Most of us, most of us, not everyone, but most of us are born with limb symmetry. Most of us have a right arm and a left arm and a right leg and a left leg, and I realize that's reversed for you, but you'll figure it out. We, we, most of us have those four limbs to work with, right? Now, what if you were to lose your left arm and your left leg? Would you still be a person? That was not a very loud answer. Would you still be important? Would you still be valuable? Would you still matter? Could you still function as a human being? Absolutely, but would you have some challenges because you lost those two limbs? Yeah, would you be at a disadvantage in certain situations? Absolutely. And that's why we as a society, when that happens, we do two things. Number one, we try to accommodate people who have that kind of disadvantage. So we have elevators and we have ramps and, and we have wheelchairs and we have special seating areas and, and we do lots of things to try to make sure we accommodate those who are at some kind of physical disadvantage because they're just as valuable as anybody else and we want to make sure they're able to do the things other people are able to do and that's wonderful. And the second thing we do is we put in place certain safety measures to make sure as few people lose limbs as possible. 
And so we have safety regulations when you're operating certain pieces of equipment and we have railings in front of dangerous places. And, and there are things that we do to both try to help and accommodate the people who have a situation where they're at a bit of a disadvantage and to try to make sure that as few people as possible have that disadvantage. You can do both those things at the same time. In the same way, it can be all true at the same time that there is something wonderful about God's design for a man and a woman to come together and raise a kid together and have a mom and a dad. And yet at the same time, that does not mean either one is less valuable. And that also doesn't mean that someone who is a single parent is somehow less valuable. In fact, it can actually be an encouragement because yes, the, the struggles that you face as a single parent are harder. And yes, you are at a disadvantage. And, and yes, there are some things that are gonna take a little more to be able to do the same thing because it is harder because that's not God's design. And that, that doesn't mean that it can't still work and it doesn't mean God won't help you. And we as a, as a society and certainly as a church should then come alongside you and help you in every way that we can to deal with those disadvantages and help you in that situation while at the same time acknowledging the fact that God's design is for two parents to be in the home for there be a mother and a father working together to raise kids. So I wanna talk about God's design for the family from the Bible now. And I wanna talk about how to build that family on a solid foundation. And we're gonna start in the book of Matthew. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 19. We're gonna start by talking about God's design for the family. And number one is a man and woman joined together for life. God's design for the family is a man and woman joined together for life. Matthew 19, 4 says, haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied. They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Take a note of that phrase. You'll need it later. Let no one split apart what God has joined together. Then some people asked him, why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. Jesus is making the point here that God's original design for the family is for a man and a woman to get married and to spend life together, to be partners for life. And yes, there are some exceptions to that. Yes, there are times that doesn't work out because we live in a broken world. And yes, Moses made exceptions for that. And Jesus here gives the exception of unfaithfulness for it. And yet, God's design was still for a husband and wife to be joined together for life. And it was God that joined them together. So that's God's design for the family number one. Now God's design for the family number two. It's a father and mother who raise godly kids together. And for this one, you're going to be in another M book, but it's Malachi. So you can turn to Malachi if you want. The prophet Malachi is giving a message to the people of Israel, and it's some condemnation. It's a charge against them that God has. And in this case, the people are feeling like, man, God's not, God's not with us. He's not close to us. Maybe you felt that way at times, that God's just not close to me anymore. And they felt like, hey, we're, we're trying to bring our sacrifices and we're trying to worship him. And it doesn't feel like he's even accepting them. And what's going on? Why is God so distant? And Malachi's going to explain it right here. You're going to be amazed at what he says. He says in verse 14 of Malachi chapter 2, you cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. 
because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young. God witnessed your wedding vows, but you have been unfaithful to her. Though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows, didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? There it is again. Call back to Genesis. You are one with your wife in body and spirit. You are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. Do you know marriage was such a big deal to God? Marriage is a really big deal to God. A marriage is, is not something that the government can give you. The government can give you a piece of paper that says you have a certain tax status and some legal privileges with each other. That's not biblical marriage. Biblical marriage, according to the Bible, is what happens when God joins two people together. And yes, there's a ceremony. And yes, there's a whole process to that. Whether or not the government has anything to do with it doesn't really matter. Biblical marriage is when God joins two people together. How exactly that all works, I don't know the, the details of it, but the Bible says that's what God does. He joins two people together. And so the idea here is that God's design for the family is that when God joins those two people together, they are not going to be separated. They're going through life together. They're partners for life. That's the way it works best. When that works out, that works out best. And then that those two people will raise godly kids together. Look at that in Malachi chapter 2, verse 15. What does God want? Godly children from your union. If God wants you to be a godly father, he also wants you to be loyal to your wife. In fact, that's one of the most important things you can do to set your family off on the right foundation is to make sure that you and your wife treat each other well. I think it's amazing. The people of Israel would be crying out because they realize they're, they're disconnected from God. And one of God's reasons is you haven't been faithful to her. You haven't been faithful to your wife. You made those vows and you need to honor them and you need to be faithful to her. And that God would withdraw his blessing and his closeness and would actually refuse their worship. I, I reject your word. You're coming to worship me. I reject it because of how you treat her, because you're unfaithful to her. That's the foundation for a godly family and a godly marriage. Now, I, I do want to pause here for a minute because we're talking about a husband and wife and getting married and that's God's design for the family and they raise godly kids together and all of this is kind of preamble for, for where we're going to go in the message. But before I go there, I have to pause and acknowledge how difficult this topic can be for some people. Because for some people, if you're single and you've wanted to get married for a long time and it's just not happening, you can listen to something like this and go, oh my goodness, this is God's plan and I'm not a part of it. Or if you've wanted to have kids for a long time and it just hasn't happened, you haven't been able to have kids, you can be going, well, this is God's plan to raise godly kids, but that, that hasn't worked out for me. And it can feel incredibly isolating and, and, and lonely and like, do I matter? Am I valuable at all? Where am I in all of this? And so I just want to take a slight detour here. Back to Matthew 19, if you'll flip back there in your Bible. Matthew, back to Matthew 19, because Jesus is actually going to kind of address this a little bit. And I think it's so neat, and I think we can't miss it before we move on to what's next here. In Matthew 19, verse 10, Jesus' disciples have just heard him say, you're not supposed to get a divorce. Yes, there are some exceptions, but the God's plan, God's intended plan is for you to stay together. And one of the disciples says, if that's the case, it's better not to marry. Now, I hope this was sarcasm. I hope that the disciples are hearing Jesus talk about not getting divorced and being faithful to your wife, and Thomas is sitting over there on the rock, and he kind of leans over and so quietly he doesn't think Jesus hears, he goes, but I'm why to get married. 
I hope that's what happened. It's not really recorded for us. You know, it would have been nice if Matthew wrote this down and put a little winky emoji at the end or something, just so that we could know like, hey, by the way, this was said in jest. I don't know. But either way, Jesus responds to it and says in verse 11, not everyone can accept this statement. So he's about to make a statement. Only those whom God helps. Some are born as eunuchs. Some have been made eunuchs by others. And some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom. Let anyone accept this who can. I think it's really interesting that Jesus acknowledges three different groups of people here. He acknowledges that there are some people who are born without the ability to have a sexual relationship. And that's fairly rare, but Jesus acknowledges it right here. And there are some people who, as a result of someone else's sin, become unable to have a sexual relationship with others and be married in that, in that way. And, and he acknowledges that. And then there are some people who choose not to be married along the way. Maybe just the right person, they never, they never meet, never comes along, it doesn't work out and, and it just doesn't happen. And so they choose not to. And Jesus says, this is a difficult thing. This is a hard thing to accept. In fact, it takes God's help to accept this, this position in life. But Jesus is, is, what he's doing here, he's normalizing it and he's affirming it and saying, yes, these categories exist and this is okay. It doesn't mean you're not part of God's plan. Yes, God's intended plan for the family was for there to be a, a father and a mother and they raise godly kids together, yes. But there are some people that aren't going to fit into those categories and that's okay. And Jesus says, it can be hard and you need God's help to accept it. But let those who can accept it, Jesus says. And so I think Jesus makes a really beautiful point here to show that, yeah, there are some people that aren't gonna fit this mold and that's okay and you don't have to feel like you're not valuable or you're not important or you're not a part of God's plan. You are, if you are in that position, it's because God has allowed it to happen. God is sovereign. Nothing happens that he doesn't create or allow. And so if you are in that position, then he has allowed that to happen for a reason and you need to recognize that God has blessed you in all sorts of ways and given you all sorts of gifts and wonderful things and maybe being a part of this kind of family design isn't part of it, at least not right now. And so number three is God's design for the family. Not everyone will experience the fullness of God's design for the family. But that doesn't mean that you don't get to experience family because you create family in all sorts of ways. And so you'll have family through the friends that you have. You'll have family through your extended family. People create families through adoption. There are lots of ways that we find family in life that may not look exactly like what we're talking about here today. We do need to talk about God's design for the family. But we also need to acknowledge there are people that don't fit into those categories neatly, and that's okay. That doesn't make you any lesser than or any less valuable. So what is God's design for the family, his intended design for the family? Well, according to, to Matthew and Malachi and Genesis, it's a dad and a mom who stick together and raise godly kids. That's what God wants from the family unit. A dad and a mom who stick together and raise godly kids. Doesn't mean everyone's gonna be a part of that kind of family. But if you are, God has some expectations for you. He has some things he wants you to do, and dads in particular, God has a role for you to play in building a solid foundation for your family, and that's what I wanna talk about for the rest of our time we have this morning. And we're gonna be in Deuteronomy chapter six. So go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy six. There is so much in Deuteronomy 6, and really the last half of 5 and chapter 6 are just filled with great information. And I had to whittle down from like 15 points to 3 for the rest of this, so you're welcome. But there is so much good stuff there. If you get a chance later today um, on Father's Day, if your kids will leave you alone for a little while, to, to go and read chapter 5 and 6 of Deuteronomy and just pick out all the great stuff for dads in there, it is amazing. But I'm just going to give you three. 
Starting in verse one, Deuteronomy six, Moses is giving instruction from God here, and here's what he says. These are the commands and decrees and regulations that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. You must obey them in the land you are about to enter and occupy, and you and your children and grandchildren must fear the Lord your God as long as you live. If you obey all his decrees and commands, you will enjoy a long life. Listen closely, Israel, and be careful to obey. Then all will go well with you, and you will have many children in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Now, there's a lot of good stuff in there, and I wish I could go into all of it. But all I want to do for this section is point out one word to you that might be a little bit difficult to understand, but I think is so crucial to building a solid foundation for your family. And that one word is fear. What is the word fear doing in there? Moses says, you and your children and your grandchildren must fear the Lord your God as long as you live. What does that mean, to fear God? Well, what I think of when I think about this kind of fear, and I study this kind of fear in the Hebrew Bible, is electricity. See, electricity is a very powerful but useful thing. I love electricity. If it weren't for electricity, we wouldn't have the lights and, and the screens and all the amazing stuff. We have the sound system to be able to listen to, to this too all over this big room here. Electricity is a wonderful thing. I, I love it at home. This last week, coming in from outside, working outside in the really hot heat, and you walk into the doors of the house, you just go, oh, yes, thank you. The air conditioning that would not work without electricity. Electricity is a wonderful, wonderful thing. I'm so thankful for it. I love it. Do I fear it? Well, a long time ago, I was working on an outlet and I decided that I didn't need to cut off the circuit breaker. And so now I have a healthy fear of electricity. See, fear can be a very positive and good thing. Electricity is wonderful and it's powerful and it should be respected because it's also dangerous. It can hurt you if you do the wrong things. God's the same way. God is big and he is powerful and he, so he deserves to be respected and yes, feared in a healthy way, a healthy fear for God. You should fear God in the same way that a criminal fears the law if he's committed a crime. You should fear God in the same way that a child fears a parent if they've been disrespectful to that parent. You should fear God in a way that if you have a relationship that is good with God, you fear losing that good relationship and so you don't want to do anything to mess it up. And so there's a healthy fear, just like a fear of electricity or a fear that someone back in these days might have for a king that they respected and loved, but they didn't want to get on the wrong side of because the king is powerful and the king can do what he wants and God is powerful and there's a, an amount of fear that we need to have for God and, and, and we need to pass that on to our kids. He says, you and your children, your grandchildren must fear the Lord your God as long as you live. One of the interesting themes throughout chapter five and six in Deuteronomy here is the idea that there are messengers that speak on behalf of God. And so in chapter five, just a little bit earlier, Moses um, acknowledged the fact that the people came to him and said, we don't want to hear from God anymore because it's too scary. They had heard from God on the mountain. They came to him and said, look, can you just be our representative? Go be the messenger that comes from God to us. We don't want to deal with that anymore because we're afraid if we hear God's voice again, we might die. It was that scary to us. So we're willing to risk your life, Moses, if you will go listen to God and bring the message to us. And then what does Moses do? He brings the message to them and says, now you are the messengers to carry this on in your families. You are to pass this on to your kids, your children and your grandchildren. You need to pass on to them this fear of the Lord. Now, imagine 
that a boss in a company were to tell his assistant to go to some employees and give them a message. So that assistant goes and they deliver the message and then they make some snide, snarky, sarcastic remark, kind of disrespectful about the boss. What does that communicate to the employees about the assistant's perspective on the boss? Respect or disrespect? Obviously, it's, it's disrespect. Now, they still delivered the message, technically, but they did it in a way that undermined the authority of the person that they were bringing the message on behalf of. And the unfortunate reality is that I think we often do this, dads, in our families, when, when we do deliver the message, sometimes we don't live in a way that shows the fear and respect of God that we ought to have. Maybe it's because we use his name in disrespectful ways. Maybe it's because we don't make him a priority in our life. Maybe it's because we don't make his family in the church a priority over all the other things in our lives. But there are ways in which we don't show our kids as we're the messengers of God to them. We may even deliver the message, but are we in the process not showing a proper fear and respect of God in everything that we do. We are God's messengers and we need to show our kids that we respect God. And in my house, sometimes what this looks like is, hey, you know what? We're going to be careful about some of the words that we use. I know your friends talk this way, but we're going to respect God in this house. And here's, here's how we're going to do that. That's how that plays out sometimes. Everything we do sends a message to our kids and it includes a message about whether or not we have a healthy fear of God, who is powerful, who we respect, who has the, the honor that he deserves. So number one, godly fathers show respect for God in everything they do. Godly fathers show respect for God in everything they do. For the next one, look at verse four in Deuteronomy six. Moses continues, listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. This is one of the most important pieces of instruction to ancient Israel. It's called the Shema. And this would be repeated all the time by the Israelites to remind them of what they're supposed to do and to pass it on to their kids. And, and in the next few verses, Moses is going to talk a lot about how to teach your kids about God. He's going to give great instruction for that. We'll get into that in just a minute. But right here, he's setting the foundation for it, which is all about the love, the dedication, the devotion that you have to God. There's, there's a lot packed into these statements. The first one is, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Let me ask you, dads, if someone were to follow you around for the next month and write down everything you do and everything you say and everything you spend money on and then give you a report, a little assessment, what would it look like your God is? What would it look like you are serving would there be a healthy amount there that is focused on the God that you say you serve? Or would it be some other hobby or some other thing that you are into? Would it look like that's a big part of your life at all? The relationship that you have with God. You know, guys make all sorts of things their gods. It can be sports, it can be work, it can be hobbies, it can be making money, it can be lots of things that on their own are not necessarily bad. It can also be things like porn and other addictions that, that are actually bad. But we make all sorts of things our gods and place those as priority over God. But God says, I am your God alone. There's not supposed to be any other God in your life. I alone am the Lord your God. God is a jealous God, the Bible says. And that's not an unhealthy jealousy. It's kind of like fear. It's not an unhealthy fear. It's not an unhealthy jealousy. God knows that what's best for you is to have a close relationship with him. Your best life is going to happen when you have a close relationship with him. doesn't mean you're going to be healthy and successful all the time, but it does mean that you're going to find greater satisfaction and fulfillment no matter what life looks like for you because you have a close walk with him. And so God is jealous for a relationship with you. He wants you to walk closely with him in everything that you do. 
not just for his sake, but for your sake. Because it'd be so much better for you, but he wants to be the only God in your life, the one who you are totally focused on, who gets all priority. And so that's why he then says, you must love God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. What does that mean? Those three words in the English might bring up certain concepts for you that don't necessarily track with their Hebrew version. So let me give you what this means in the Hebrew. The heart here refers to the inner being, the emotions, the will, and the mind. It's everything that's inside. That's what that word in the Hebrew would mean for the heart. The soul actually refers to your physical being, your whole person, the whole being. And we know that because sometimes this word is used even in scripture um, and outside of scripture to refer to a dead body even. So it's not like we would think of a soul as sort of an inner sort of spiritual thing. The soul in this case refers to your physical being. So you have your inner being and you have your whole being and then your strength refers to all of your resources. And sometimes this is used of finances. Sometimes it's used of social resources or even physical resources. So what Moses has here is three different aspects of your life that need to be devoted to God. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength, with all your inner being, with your whole person, your body, everything that you are, and with all your resources, your money, your time, everything that you have to bring to the table. All of that is to be devoted entirely for God. You know, that's a hard thing, I think, especially for guys. And I don't know, maybe it is just as hard for the ladies, but I can only speak for the guys. It's a hard thing because we like to have boxes for everything we do, don't we? You've probably heard this before. We've got a box for a hobby. We've got a box for our work. And we've got a box for our family. And we've got all these different boxes for things. And ideally, those boxes don't touch that much. Like ideally, they don't overlap too much. Because when they do, things kind of get complicated. And it's nice to just keep things neat and organized. And what a lot of us guys do is we have a box for God. There's a God box. And once a week, from 10 to noon on Sunday, we open the God box. And maybe if we're really spiritual, five to seven minutes a day, five days a week, we open the God box. And right before we eat a meal, we open the God box very quickly and then shut it as quickly as possible. We go back to eating our meal. See, this is what we tend to do. We have this God box that we sort of let God have this portion of my life. And then we sort of put him back and we forget about him until it's time to open the God box again. What Moses is saying here is God's got to be in every box. He's got to be in every part of everything you're doing. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, your whole being, all your strength, all your resources. When you're at work, when you're at home, when you're in hobbies, when you're watching sports, you're loving God through all of that. You're not forgetting about him. You're not putting him in a box. That is the kind of relationship that God wants to have with you. And it sets you up for the foundation to have an influence on your kids spiritually. If they don't see this, in your life, then why would they care when they grow up about being faithful to the God that it didn't seem like you actually had a relationship with? This is the kind of foundation that God wants you to have for your family. You love God with everything you are. Every single box has God in it. So number two, godly fathers love God over everything else. Love God over everything else and through everything else and in everything you do. Now let's get to number three. Verse six, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you're on the road, when you are going to bed and when you are getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts on your house and on your gates. 
So let me ask you, after, after reading through that, whose responsibility is it to teach our kids about God? Whose responsibility is it to teach our kids about God? It's our responsibility. See, they were setting up a whole, a whole religious structure too. They were setting up the tabernacle and the temple and the Levites and the priests and all that stuff was being established. And yet, Moses doesn't say, you will make sure that your kids are in the temple once a week to learn about God. He says, no, you are gonna do this. You are gonna repeat it over and over to your kids. You're gonna talk about it when you're home, when you're on the road. You're gonna talk about it in the morning and in the night. You're gonna write things down so that there are reminders all over your house and even in your community to remind your kids about these things because it's your responsibility to teach them about God. It is so easy for us as Christian dads to think, well, as long as I get my kids to church, the church is gonna teach them about God. And yet that's not what the Bible says about a father's responsibility with his children. We dads are supposed to be the one, and moms too, teaching our kids about God. Now, the, don't get me wrong, the church is incredibly important, and the church is a part of that. So the church is a great partner in helping you raise your kids to know and follow Jesus, absolutely. And there are things that the church can do that will make your job so much easier. Sometimes when my kids hear something from a teacher at church, they will listen better than if they hear it from mom and dad. And so that's a huge help. And there's mentoring in churches and there's kids ministry and there's student ministry and there's all these things that are a great supplement to what you're doing at home, but don't think it's a replacement. Now dads can show their priority of God in their life by making sure that they're bringing their family to church, that they show this, this matters to me, this is a priority. Unless there's something really big that we can't be there for, we're going to be with the family of God. That's one way to show, hey, this is a big deal to me. I respect God in this way. And as a family, we're gonna respect God in this way. We're gonna go, we're gonna learn about him. We're gonna be part of the family of God. Dads should not have to be dragged to church by their wives. They should be leading the family there. And that's a big part of showing that God is a priority in your life. Did you know that, this is a bit of an aside, but kids who grow up without a dad who goes to church, but mom goes to church, of those children, if you take 50 kids, one of them will stay faithful when they grow up and become an adult. But if you take 50 kids whose dad does go to the church regularly, whether the mom does or doesn't, that number jumps to between 33 and 37. For some reason, dads have a massive amount of influence on the faith of their children. And if your kids see that this is a priority to you, then it will, be, it will likely become a priority to them. It's not a guarantee. They can still make their own choices, but you can set them up for a lifetime of faith and success if they will follow it by being that example for them and making God's family a priority. Dad, statistically speaking, you have a huge amount of influence on the faith of your children. And if they see that's a priority to you, it will be a priority to them. If they see that it's not a priority to you, then why would they stick with it either? If it's just an afterthought, if it's just the God box that I pull out every now and then. So how do we teach our kids? Moses is giving us four things here four ways that we can teach our kids about God. And we're not gonna put it up on the screen for you. I'm just gonna walk through it. So if you've got this, open your Bibles. Verses seven and eight of Deuteronomy six. You'll see number one, repeat them again and again to your children. That's the first thing, repetition. If you're a, a parent, you know it's never enough to say it once. 
You've gotta say it again and again and again because they will forget and they will forget often. And it's amazing how many times I will correct my children. I just told you, yeah, but I forgot. So God knows. And we have to repeat it over and over again. Number one, repetition of God's commands. Number two, teachable moments. Moses says, talk about them when you are at home and when you are on the road. In other words, when you're on a road trip, or when you're doing stuff around the house, doing chores, taking care of things, like all of these are teachable moments, opportunities for you to talk to your kids about God. And next is the beginning and ending of the day. He says, um, when you are going to bed and when you are getting up. You know, getting up in the morning is a great time to talk about how does God want us to live today? What does God want us to do? Where did we kind of go wrong in some previous days and how are we gonna do better today, last night? My daughter gave the prayer for us as we were getting ready for bed, and uh, she's very honest. And so she prayed for all of the faults of the different family members and where they needed to improve. Just <laughs> very sweet. It was a long prayer, <laughs> including her own, to be fair. But at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, we take stock of, hey, did we live for God today? How did we do? Sometimes we'll do something called highs and lows. What was your high for the day? What was your low for the day? Where did God show up in that? What is, how does God want you to respond? You know, if your low is, hey, my friends did this and I didn't like it and then I responded by blowing up at them. Okay, well, how does God want you to respond to that? All of these are teachable moments in the beginning and ending of the day when we can train our kids and raise them to be godly kids. The last one is written reminders. He says, tie them to your hands. Wear them on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your, on your um, gates. It should be visible. It should be evident. You know, we know that if there's something important, we're going to write it down. And we know that in our educational system, it's not enough to just give oral communication. And that, that's good. But what's better is oral communication and written communication. We want both. We want reading and writing. We want them to be able to understand God's teaching, not just in an oral form, but in a written form as well. So do we have that in our house? Do we have kids' Bibles, and do we have kids' devotionals, and do we have uh, materials and things on the walls to remind them of what we believe in Bible verses, and, and are we putting notes in their lunchboxes with, with reminders of how we love them and God loves them, and maybe a Bible verse? There are all these opportunities that we have as parents to make sure that our kids know we value our relationship with God. We fear him. We respect him. We love him in everything we do, and you know what? The reality is sometimes we will mess up, and we have to be honest about that too. And sometimes we make mistakes. Earlier this week, I had to apologize to my kids because I got upset about something and I, I blew up and I reacted in a big way that I shouldn't have reacted. And I just had to say, look, I, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. That kind of a, of a willingness to say, hey, I messed up here and I'm not the ultimate authority. God's the ultimate authority. And I fear him and I respect him enough to say I was wrong to you. And I don't want you to learn from that example because that was the wrong thing to do. I want to teach you a better way and teach you as God is teaching me and I'm still learning and growing in that area. That's the kind of thing we have to do, dads, to make sure our kids are growing up to be godly kids. So point number three is godly fathers are always teaching their kids about God. Make sure that you have a love for your wife if you're married. Make sure that you are showing honor and respect to her that's God's design for your family. Make sure that you are representing a fear and respect for God in everything that you do, that you are loving God with all that you are, not just in the God box, and then take advantage of every opportunity to be teaching your kids about God. Because if you take nothing else away from today, maybe those statistics about how important it is to have a dad in the home and a dad in the church, because it makes a huge difference when you're raising godly kids. Let's pray together.
Father, you have given us such an incredible example of what it means to be a father who loves and who forgives and who is merciful and who is gracious. And God, I pray that you would help all of us dads in the room and watching online to learn from your example. And even when we fail, to just be honest and authentic about that and to be real with our kids so that they see, hey, we're not perfect, but we serve someone who is. We're not flawless, but, but we're working on it. We're trying to get better and, and we're seeking God's will in everything we do and, and trying to, as, as well as we can with God's help to be devoted to him in everything we are. God, I know that the dads here care about their kids and the grandfathers care about their grandkids and they wanna see them grow up to follow and serve you. You've given us some wonderful guidance on how to do that. And the reality is those kids will still make their decisions. We can set up a, a solid foundation and somebody can still jump off of it. And that happens sometimes. But God, as much as it depends on us and what we can do, help us as dads, as moms, as mentors, as spiritual guides, whatever role we have in influencing other people, especially younger generations, help us to build a solid foundation Help us to represent you well. Help us to raise godly young people who will continue that and pass that on to future generations, Lord. We need your help to do it. We ask for it. We praise you for everything you do in our lives and our families. And in Jesus' name we pray.